The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. We continue our study of Genesis, and we're uh, approaching, I guess, three-quarters of the way through. I think we're going to end up around the end of May wrapping up Genesis. And so we're going through some large chunks of Scripture. But as we've been seeing, God is sovereign. And the idea of sovereign is a difficult uh, concept to get your head around. It's the idea of a king who is the sovereign ruler over his territory. Well, God is the sovereign ruler over all things. And how he works in the details of life is a term called providence, that God is working providentially in all things. And we're watching through the scriptures how God is working all the way to Jesus, that he has promised to Abraham a Messiah would come who would redeem and restore his people and his planet. And we're seeing him working in the details of people's lives in order to bring this about. And what we've seen is that we've been encouraged to embrace this idea of God's providence or God's sovereignty. And oftentimes it's a very hard concept to embrace because we wrestle with the idea, if God is sovereign, then am I still responsible? And what we've seen is, yes, uh, we see in Ephesians 2.11, the scripture says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, not just some things but all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, Wayne Grudem, a theologian, defined a portion of his definition is this about God's providence. Grudem, Grudem says, God causes all things that happen, but listen to this, but he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices that have real and eternal results, and for which we are held accountable. Grudem goes on to say exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices. Scriptures does not explain to us, but rather than denying one aspect or the other, simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, rather than do that, we should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of the Scriptures. We sit under the authority of God's word. We don't decide what's true because we can and cannot explain it. God's word makes it clear. God is sovereign, providentially involved in all things, and our actions, our choices all matter. And we're responsible. Very hard to reconcile that. But they're both true. There's a tension there that we must live in. And so we've encouraged us two weeks ago to embrace this idea of God's providence, even though we can't fully explain it or understand it. But there is a great joy in it. There is a great rest in knowing God is sovereign because God is good. He is gracious. He has a good, incredible plan for his world, for you, for your lives. And so to know that he is intimately involved in your life is a blessing to embrace and not to resist. At the same time, we realize our decisions matter. To, one week ago, Kevin reminded us that God is providentially working even through schemers and deceivers like Jacob, like Esau, like me, like you. And we can't stop God's plan. He's going to bring about his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And that is a blessing in itself. Today, we're going to ask the question, what we see Jacob doing, this scheming, was it necessary and was it good? Because we see it, and it's, it's not really commented on very directly. And so we kind of go away going, well, Jacob is this big schemer. Is this a good thing? 
let me begin by asking the question that the text kind of begs of us. Why were Jacob and Rebekah scheming? For those who weren't here in the last couple of weeks, what I'm referring to is, let's see if I can get all these names right. I'm working on weeks ahead, and I just keep blowing at every service. So Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. God told Rebekah beforehand the younger would be the one he chose, not the traditional one, which was the older. So he said, the older will serve the younger. Well, as this was playing out, we see Rebekah and Jacob scheming to take the birthright and the blessing from Esau so that Jacob can have it. And so we're wondering, is this a good thing? I mean, it worked. I mean, the end result was what God said would happen would happen. So do the ends justify these sketchy means is the question. Was it necessary and was it a good idea? But as we wonder why were they doing that, let me read a few excerpts from Genesis that talk about the character of the scenes and and see if we can kind of put ourselves in their shoes. Why were they doing this scheming? One reason may be found in Genesis 25, 28. It says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So maybe Rebekah had Jacob scheming because Rebekah simply loved Jacob more and wanted to make sure that he got the blessing. But we also see in Genesis 25, 23, God told Rebekah, As I've already mentioned, the older one shall serve the younger. So maybe the scheming is because they thought this is the Lord's will. And they were justifying it in their own mind. Hey, we're just simply bringing about God's will. God told me it was going to be Jacob, so I need to make sure this happens. I'm sorry, y'all. And then in 2534, we are told something about Esau. Esau despised the birthright. Well, no wonder. Esau was a bum. He didn't need to have the blessing and the birthright. He didn't even appreciate it. He didn't value it. He despised it. We're also told something else about Esau in 28.8. We are told, it says, When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he went off and married one. And we're told in the text he did it just to spite his parents. And so what we're seeing is this complicated practical scenario real life happens they know what god's will is but esau's a bum dad prefers esau esau's about to get the blessing we need to step in here and so what we see is they were doubting that god either cared or was aware or was involved or was able to do something about it whatever the case may be why did they get involved They didn't trust the Lord. What I would say more particularly is when we doubt either attribute of God, that God is both sovereign and good, when we doubt that God is sovereign or good, then we are tempted to manipulate. We are tempted to compromise our character. We are tempted to sin, to cut corners, to take control, to jump in and make sure that God's will is done according to our good pleasure. And so what we're going to see today is that's not how it should go. That's often how we are tempted as we see God's plans being threatened by people's actions or by the fact that his timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. 
when we are tempted to cut corners, to scheme, to manipulate, to control, to get involved, to get all up in the business and make sure that everything works out, we're going to be reminded, don't do that. Instead, trust the Lord. And that's my prayer today is that as we look at this text, the Lord teaches us to trust him and keeps us from sinful scheming. Father, would you do that in our hearts this morning? As we study about Jacob and his interactions with with Laban, would you teach us that we don't need to, to scheme or to cut corners or to compromise our character, but we can trust you are working out your plan according to your ways and according to your timetable. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's what I want to do today. I'm going to work through four scenes very briefly. We're choosing large chunks of scripture in order to get through these passages. But we're going to look at four scenes, and each scene has a lesson for us. And each of these lessons, I pray, will help us not be deceptive schemers like Jacob. The first scene is the dream scene. We're calling it the dream scene. In chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob is heading out from Beersheba. He went towards Haran. This is in 28.10, so Jacob is launching out on a journey. He's going to Haran to find a wife, a wife from his own family so that the seed that God has promised will not be mixed with other seeds. So we see he's heading out. Verse 11, he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night. He got tired because the sun had set. So then he takes one of the stones of that place. He put it under his head. He lay down in that place to go to sleep. This is obviously before those convenient travel pillows. In verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder. We know this is Jacob's ladder. There's a ladder set up on earth. On the top of it, it reached to the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, your literal father. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. And to your offspring, verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now stop there. Nod your head up and down if you recognize these words. No? Nobody's nodding. Y'all don't recognize these promises. If you recognize these promises, you are learning to be good readers of the Bible. It doesn't take just a class to tell you how to read the Bible, though those are helpful. But what you're doing week in and week out as we work through the book of Genesis, we're learning there are key texts and key promises. And these, this wording is a key promise that God made to Abraham. And he made it to Abraham, and he made it to his son Isaac, and he's making it again to his son Jacob. And so what God is doing is reinstating his covenant promises. And what did we say this promise is? This is God's promise to redeem and restore his people and his planet. That the world is affected by sin, it's messed up, it's crumbling, but God says, I'm going to fix the problem. It's going to come through the seed of Abraham, who we saw is now the seed of Isaac, who we are now seeing is the seed of Jacob. And so God promises to him to do all these promises that he's made to his forefathers. And so what I want to ask you, though, as we look at this, Who's the main actor in the promise? Is it God or is it Jacob? 
Who's going to be the one that carries out all these massive promises? In case you don't know the answer, look at verse 15. We continue reading. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you and I have done until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is all God. God comes to to Jacob at the beginning of his journey in a place he's going to name Bethel. As he heads to Haran and back to Bethel, God is saying, this whole journey, I will be with you. Now remember, Jacob is being pursued by his brother Esau, who hates his guts. That's how this text begins. He says, Esau hates Jacob. He hates him with such a passion. The only thing that comforts Esau is the knowledge, I'm going to kill him. That's how much he hates him. It says that when dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob, and I find great pleasure in that plan. And so Jacob is fleeing for his life. Rebecca, his mom, says, you need to go get out of here so that Esau doesn't kill you. And by the way, while you're there, find a wife from our own family. And so God says, while you're on this journey to Haran and back, I will be with you. I will make sure all my promises that I've made you will be fulfilled. And so the lesson of the dream of Jacob's ladder for you today is this. God is always with you. God is not this far-removed God, this this deity who just created things and wound the clock and stepped it up and walked away and, and let it unwind. That's not the God of Abraham. That's not the God of Isaac. That's not the God of Jacob. That's not Jesus Christ. He is intimately, eminently present with you 24-7. Do you live with a sense of the presence of God? This is one of the most transforming truths of your faith with God, is He is with you every moment of the day. If you think God is just in this building, you miss the whole point. If you think God is only when you open your Bible, you're missing the point. God is with you. It says that all who put their faith in Christ are indwelled by the Spirit of God and He is eminently with you. When when Jesus Christ tells His disciples, go and make disciples, what does He say? I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I have you in my hands. Nothing can separate you from Jesus. And so God is with you at work. He's with you when you kneel at the bed with your children and you pray with them. He's with you when you're trying to put together that business deal. He's with you when you're pitching your business at the clients, at your customer's office. He's with you when you're trying to sell your business. He's with you every step of the way. He knows every little detail of your life. He's imminently there. With Jacob, we should all say, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. It will revolutionize your life to come to the realization that Jesus Christ is with you. If you are in Christ, he is in you, and you are inseparable. Everywhere you go, everything you do, every detail of life, he is providentially involved in it every step of the way. Surely the Lord is in this place, 
and I did not know it. This is a lesson from the dream scene. To keep from sinful scheming, you must know the sovereign and good God is always with you wherever you go. When you're tempted to take matters into your own hand, when you look and you say, this isn't working out the way I thought, when you're thinking God isn't doing things according to the timing that I thought, you need to remember he's sovereign, he's good, and he is with you every step of the way. In verse 18, we continue seeing how Jacob responds to this dream where God promises to be with him. He says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he pulled, poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house or the dwelling of God. But the name of the city had been Luz at first, then Jacob made a vow. So in response to God's promise to be with him, Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go from Bethel to Haran and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again back to Bethel to my father's house, house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you, God. If you really are with me, if you really keep your word, if you really will protect and provide for me, then I will be fully dedicated and devoted to you, is the vow that Jacob makes. Knowing the reality of the imminent presence and protection and provision of God elicits our complete dedication and devotion to God. Knowing that you don't deserve it. Here is a schemer who didn't deserve God's presence, didn't deserve God's protection, didn't deserve God's provision. If anything, God should have just thumped him off the map. Instead, God says, I'm going to be with you everywhere you go. I'm going to provide you food, everything you need. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to get you back to this place because I've got a plan for your life. And upon realizing that, as an undeserving Jacob schemer, his only response is to say, well, in that case, I'm all in. I'm fully devoted and dedicated to you. And it affects his pocketbook. It affects every aspect of his life. And that should be true of us as well. As undeserving sinners not deserving his presence, his provision, or his protection, our devotion should be complete dedication and devotion to the Lord. So in the dream we learn, God promises to always be with you wherever you go, providing for you, protecting you, even though you don't deserve it. And next we see the well seen. The well seen. Jacob heads off to Haran after he gets up from this dream, makes a vow to God, and he heads to Haran to find a wife from Abraham's family at his uncle Laban's household. I won't read the narrative, but you'll, the point that I want to make is that in these narratives, they are patterned after one another. This narrative, if you've been reading along with us and you read Jacob's journey to go find a wife and how it all goes down at the well, it's exactly what we saw Isaac's servant doing at the well. 
And that's the point. The author is intentionally bringing to your mind, this is exactly what happened before. Just like God was with Isaac's servant, he's with, Juba- with Jacob. Jacob comes up to a well. He doesn't know any place about where he is. He doesn't know who the people are. He comes up to the well, and we're going to see God is with him, orchestrating the details, blessing him exactly like he did with Isaac. Look at what I'm saying. 29 verse 4, Jacob said to them at the well, my brothers... Where do you come from? He's like, I have no idea where, y'all, where you come from, but I'm looking for people from Haran. And they said, we're from Haran. Well, that's good karma, isn't it? I mean, he must have a rabbit's foot hanging off his camel saddle. I mean, he's rubbing that lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, he is just one lucky dude. And he said to them, well, hey, do you happen to know a man named Laban, the son of Naor? And they said, we do know him. He's thinking, I got to buy a lottery ticket. And he said to them, well, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And oh my, look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, now. Man, I'm telling you, God is with him. This is exactly how the other scene was when Rebecca shows up. In fact, the quote is exactly the same. It says in verse 9, while he was still speaking. Do you remember that? When the servant of Isaac was praying and telling God this complicated sign and laying out how it's all going to go so he'll know which, which woman is the right woman. And it said, while he was still speaking, Rebekah walked up. Same thing here. While he was still speaking, Rachel walks up. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, Uncle Laban, And the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brothers. Now that was a display of God's presence with him, giving him extraordinary strength because in the previous part of the narrative it said nobody could move that stone because it took three men. And so Jacob just walks up there, moves the stone, and gives them water. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. Literally, this is kissing cousins. And he wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kin and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So all of this is, if you'll remember, written very similar to the whole scene with Isaac's servant looking for a bride for Isaac. What we're trying to see, what, what the author is trying to make us understand is, surely God is in this place. God promised to go with Jacob And God is with Jacob every step of the way. Now, we think about it differently, but if you put yourself in Jacob's shoes, he's just going through these motions going, where do I go? How's this going to work out? I don't know anything that we as readers know, but God is orchestrating the details every step of the way. Surely God is in this place, and we need to know it. And so the author is pointing out, don't ever forget God is with you every step of the way. Now, it's not easy to remember. I remember remember not remembering one time. God had made it clear to Dana and myself that you're going to plant a church called Norris Ferry Church. At the time, we thought it was going to be called Providence Community Church, but it's Norris Ferry Community Church. And he did little, I would say just little miracles, just one after another, literally like daily, 
for, a, for about week after week after week, just day after day after day, convincing me because I was the one going, I don't, I don't think this is going to work because we've already been told no, and I don't think it's going to. And, and God had given my wife just an unusual confidence that this is what the Lord's doing. And every day he was showing me just through one thing after another. And I wasn't even begging for like signs. I was just like, wow, okay, well, maybe, maybe. He convinced us that he was going to plant this church here. But then... So we went and wrote a letter and handed it to my, to my boss, Dr. Chuck Pusho at Broadmoor, and said, we feel God, absolutely convinced God's called us to plant this church. Now, we're not asking you for money. We're not asking for you a bunch of people. We're not asking for anything except your blessing. And if you don't bless it, we're not going to do it. But we're convinced God's going to do it. And so he said, okay, well, let me, let me pray about it. And he came back and he said, after previously, it, didn't, it wasn't something they were interested in doing. He said, okay, let's do it. We're going to ask the church to, to bless this and to be a part of this. So we were thrilled. I was so excited. I mean, there was never a doubt now. God is in this. And nobody can stop this because this is God's will. And God's doing it. And then, I don't know, a week goes by, three weeks go by, a month go by, two months. And I'm bouncing off the walls. I'm like, are we going to do this or not? When are we going to move forward? And I'm growing impatient because it hadn't been brought to the church and it just was taking forever. And, and I'm starting to think, I got to make this thing happen. God needs my help. And at that time, Dr. Chuck Pusho was my next door neighbor. He moved next door. And so he's at the mailbox when we get this thing that was called a newspaper. It used to be paper, and they put a rubber band, they threw it in your driveway. And we got this newspaper, and it read something. It said something. I don't know what it said, but what I remember the feeling was, oh, my word, someone's going to beat us to it. Because the article was talking about this growth, and the churches are interested in planting a church, and it was other churches. And I'm like, we have got to do something. And I see Chuck at his mailbox, and I march over there, and I'm like, Chuck, when are we going to do this? This paper, someone's going to beat us to the punch. And I never will forget, he looked at me as Chuck Pusho does, and he says, now I thought you said God was absolutely in this. And I'm like, whatever. (laughs) But it was a reminder that I needed. God is going to do this, but it's not going to be on my timetable. It's not going to be the way I want to do it. It's not going to be how I would do it or when I would do it, but God is going to do it. And I needed that reminder. And maybe you need that reminder today. You're looking at your life and you thought it was going to be different. And you thought I was going to be here, but I'm here. And you're tempted to compromise your character. You're tempted to cut corners. You're tempted to manipulate and control and take matters into your own hand. And you're, you're tempted because you're thinking either God's not good or God's not sovereign because things aren't working the way I thought they would work. And let this be a reminder. God is sovereign and God is good. He's in it. Wait on the Lord. Be content with the Lord. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. I promise you we're going to learn from Jacob. It's not God's plan for your life. So never forget, God is with you. This is the point of the first two scenes. God promises to be with him in the first scene. In the second scene, we see God is absolutely with him. Let's never forget, God is with you. The third scene is the Laban scene. Verse 13 of chapter 29. 
As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, how God was with him. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. So, so far, so good. God is working. His plan's out through Jacob. This is not luck. This is not coincidence. This is not karma. This is God's providential blessing. Then in verse 15, Lacob says to Jacob, Jacob, he says, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So apparently he was working for a month, and he's like, look, I owe you something. So he says, tell me, what shall your wages be? Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. This is foreshadowing. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Something's up here. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's bad. You just don't say that. That's politically incorrect. You know, I got Leah. She's got weak eyes, if you know what I mean. And I got Rachel, and she's beautiful. And in verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Did you catch that phrase? I will serve you seven years for your younger rather than the older. The author has all these things he could tell us about this scene. But the author, inspired by God, picks what he says to make a point. Jacob chooses the younger rather than the older. Does that sound familiar? Jacob is the younger rather than the older. So here we see the author is making us aware something's up. So he chooses Rachel, the younger, but the custom would be that he would marry the older. In his blessing, he was the younger and he got blessed rather than the custom, which would have been the older child. So since I know what's about to happen in the text, I want to ask you a question. What should Jacob be doing before he chooses his spouse? In light of what we know about God, who is providentially involved in every detail of our life, what should he be doing when he is asked, who do you want to marry? Anyone want to say something out loud? Pray. You might want to ask God, do you have a preference? Which one I should marry? Since you are involved in every detail of my life, do we see that in the text? No. In fact, throughout the early scenes of Jacob's life, all we see is he isn't asking God for anything. He's just flying off the seat of his pants. He's presented as this rash, spontaneous dude, a lot like me, just trying to do whatever pragmatically works to make things work out the way he wants it to be. We don't see until later in life he has learned to ask and seek God. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. So Jacob says, well, if you're asking me what my wages are, give me your good-looking younger daughter. Let me marry her. Verse 19, Laban said, well, it's isn't real endorsement, but he's like, well, I guess it's better to give her to you than someone else. I don't know. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and it seemed to him like a few days because he was in love. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, hey, I'm done. It's been seven years. Give me that wife that I may go and be with her for the time is completed. 
So Laban gathered together all the people to the place. They made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah. Whoop, there it is. And he brought her to Jacob into the tent. Then there's a little foreshadowing. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Because later we're going to see how she comes back in the picture. Verse 25. And in the morning, behold, Jacob wakes up and discovers it was Leah. Now, I don't get this. I don't know if it's because they had no electricity. Clearly, they drank too much a lot in these days. And so he wakes up. He says, oh, it's Leah. What in the world happened? I thought this was supposed to be Rachel. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Listen to these words. Jacob. If this ain't the pot calling the kettle black, why then have you deceived me? Laban said, that's not how it's done in our country, son. You don't get the younger. We heard about you. We knew you were going to be up to something. How's it taste? That's what's going on. Laban said, it's not how it's done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other one in return for serving me another seven years. So what does Jacob say? What does Jacob do? All we're told is Jacob did so. There's just no, he has nothing he can say. He's tasting his own medicine. Jacob did so. He completed the week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And then a little more foreshadowing, Laban gives female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Verse 30, so Jacob went in to her also, to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, this is a messed up scene. This is not a good family plan. Loving one more than the other, despising one. This is a tradition, this is a generational sin that we're seeing passed down family in these families is they're doing all this scheming, they're taking matters in their hand, and there's bitterness. They put the fun in dysfunction. They're the ones that started that T-shirt. You're going to see it's all messed up. So this Laban scene is dripping with irony. It's written in a way to intentionally show us the consequences of Jacob's deceiving. Jacob deceived Isaac, so that the younger was chosen over the older, and Laban deceived Jacob so that the older was given instead of the younger. And when Jacob asked in verse 25, why have you deceived me? We can't help but laugh at Laban's response. It is not right to give the younger before the firstborn. And Jacob is left speechless. He can't deny it. All we are told in verse 28, Jacob did so. He worked another seven years. These are the consequences of Jacob's scheming. If ever there's a time that you and I in our culture is tempted to look at that and go, karma, it's not karma. This is the discipline of the Lord. This is the discipline of the Lord. You see, when we think about surely God is present with us, we go, yes, he's so good. But when we sin, surely God is present with us as well. What is this? This is the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 5 through 10, which is a passage which 
actually mentions Esau's failure to repent, Esau's failure to repent later. But in that context, we read this about the discipline of the Lord. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see, God, when you put your faith in Christ, he adopted you as his son, and he says, I'm with you everywhere you go, and that even includes disciplining you when you need it so that you will be more like my holiness. So he doesn't put up with scheming. He doesn't put up with sinful scheming and compromising and cutting corners and and getting away with this nonsense just to make things happen the way we think they should happen. Jacob is on a journey from Bethel to Haran and back to Bethel. Jacob is on a transformational journey. Jacob is being sanctified. When he leaves Bethel, his name is Jacob, deceiver. When he comes back and wrestles with God, his name is changed to Israel, he who strives with God. That's what God's doing in your life. That's what God's doing in my life. As he accomplishes his plans and his purposes, he's sanctifying you. He's making you holy. He's building the righteousness of God that he declared over you. He's building it in you. And he does it with corrective discipline as necessary. But a good loving father does not have wrath and vengeance for his children. He has corrective loving discipline for his children. So yes, the Lord is in this place and I didn't realize it. The Lord is with you wherever you go. Even when you're tempted because you look at things and you say, this isn't how I intended it to be. I didn't imagine my marriage being like this. I didn't imagine my job going like this. I didn't imagine my career would take this long. I didn't imagine him getting the promotion instead of me. I didn't imagine them making straight A's and I'm not. And I'm tempted to cheat. Surely the Lord is with you in that moment. And I don't want you to forget it. It's what the writer's saying to us. And he says, I will transform you from deceptive to dedicated, from deceiver to devoted, one day at a time. So God promises to be with Jacob. God shows up and is with Jacob. And then here we see God disciplining Jacob. Finally, we have the fourth scene, the birthing scene. I don't have time to work through all the birthing scenes, so let me just tell you what happens. It's one messed up scene. Go back and read it. 
You've got Leah, whom God chooses, and you've got Rachel, whom Jacob chooses. Leah is able to have children. Rachel is not able to have children. And the scriptures clearly says God made that decision. God closed Rachel's womb, opened Leah's womb. Leah has children, and the most important child to take notice is a child named Judah. This overarching plan of God bringing forth his Messiah through the chosen seed, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Even though most of the next narratives are going to talk about Rachel's son, Joseph. But he's not the chosen one. God has a plan for him. He even uses him to save the generation from starvation. But he's not the one of the chosen Messiah. That's Judah. So God had in store for Jacob to marry Leah all along. And they would have a child named Judah. But Jacob, in all his scheming, chose Rachel without consulting the Lord. And as a result, his brother hates him because of his scheming. He's running for his life because of his scheming. And in this narrative, we see in the birth narratives that those those two servants that were mentioned, Leah's servant is this, Rachel's servant is this, is because when Leah starts having children, Rachel gets bitter. And she's like, hey, sleep, you need to sleep with my servant. And we need to have some children that way. Sounds like Uncle Abraham did it. Or Grandfather Abraham did the same thing. And so they had children with, with, so Jacob had children with Rachel's servant. And then Leah gets jealous. And Leah says, well, here, sleep with my servant. And so then he's sleeping with Leah's servant. And so we have these children with Leah's servants. And then God graciously opens Rachel's womb. Why? I don't know. (laughs) Because he's gracious. And he enables her to have children. And so then Jacob has children with Rachel. And then there's a weird scene about one of them selling the spouse. You can sleep with him if you give me your son's pomegranates. I don't know. It's just messed up. And guess what? In the list of all these children are 11 of the 12 children of Israel. This is the foundation of the people of God. Messed up, dysfunctional people filled with bitterness, jealousy, envy, and strife. And God says, that's the people I'm going to build my nation upon. He's a gracious God. It doesn't make sense. But he's that kind of God. But in the birthing scenes, what we see, I like the way John Selhammer explains it. He says, thus, in two major reversals in Jacob's life, we can begin to see the writer's theme taking shape. Jacob sought to marry Rachel, but Laban tricked him. Then Jacob sought to build a family through Rachel, but she was barren and God opened Leah's womb. Here's the point. Jacob's schemes, which had brought him fortune thus far, were now beginning to crumble. Such schemes would not be sufficient to carry out the further plans of God. Jacob, too, would have to depend on God to bring about his divine blessing. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're going, you know what, I hear what you're saying about this invisible hand of God in my life, but you know what, with me running the show, it's been working out just fine. 
This is a kind warning from the Lord. Surely the Lord is in this place with you, wherever you go, and you don't even know it. That's a good thing because it tells you he'll provide and he'll protect. But it's also a good thing because he says he will discipline you to keep you out of that lifestyle of scheming. I pray your life doesn't come crumbling down because you think that you're getting away with cheating. May the Lord warn us this morning, graciously. So I ask you, are you struggling? Students, are you struggling? Are you wanting to cheat? So easy now with technology. You see other guys and girls making straight A's and they get awards and banquets and you probably see some that are absolutely getting straight A's and they're cheating their tail off. And you're like, man, that's, that's a whole lot easier than stayed up till 2 in the morning studying my tail off. Don't do it. An honest C is much better than a cheating A. Maybe in your business you're thinking, man, I'm working my tail off and it's just not where I thought it should be. Trust the Lord. He's with you. Father, would you be with us this morning? Remind us of your sovereignty and your goodness, that you are with us with every aspect of our lives, every thing we do. May we not give in to the temptation to cut corners, to lie, to cheat, to deceive May we trust that you have the right plan for our life, that you are sovereign and you are good. May you build your kingdom on us, though we are a mess so many times. But Lord, when we look at the cross, we're reminded of your faithfulness to work sovereignly for our good as you sent Jesus Christ through the line of Judah to die on the cross, to pay for our sins so that we as deceivers can be declared righteous. And it's ridiculous that you would do that for us. And may we in response make a vow to be dedicated and devoted to you all of our lives. And it's Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.